I want to sue Disney for emotional distress for Mr. Tote's wild ride. You're a rich girl and you're gone too far cause Welcome back to Weirds for Lunch. This is the show where we would walk a thousand miles if we could just see you tonight. 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 <laughs> I'm your host, Lindsay Tucker. And joining me this week and every week is Aviv Rubenstein. Aviv, hello. Hello. So, Lindsay. Yeah. As you know, but the listeners might not know, I'm the one that edits the shows on the video i chop 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 and Lindsay drinks her coffee very delicately and like like looks good on camera drinking coffee and i look like oh and so i'm like trying to figure out how to drink well on camera really you need why didn't you just ask me I, how do you drink how do you drink so well on camera Lindsay? well you kind of tilt your head a little and then you make eye contact with yourself and then you're like i don't think this is right <laughs> Such a good drinker. Such a good on-camera drinker. Cross? I've been practicing. Are you looking cross? I turn my head a little bit, and then I... I think I turn my head too much. Too much. Anyway. For sure too much. It's for sure too much. <laughs> <laughs> Just spin around. Exorcist. Okay. So what are we talking about today, Lindsay? Today, we are talking about the song A Thousand Miles by Vanessa Carlton, correct? C- correct. And and so, content warning for our listeners, we're going to talk a little bit about drug use, a little bit about disordered eating. We're talking about a woman in the early 2000s, so like, of course, of course we deal with this stuff. And probably some grooming and... Yeah, predatory behavior. Yeah, we're going to touch on all of our <laughs> Lyrics for Lunch greatest hits. So, A Thousand Miles is the super mega smash hit. Breakout from year, hit. Breakout hit from the year 2002. It was her debut single. And it was originally called Interlude. And it was released the week after Valentine's Day in 2002. Wow. So thank you for that, Vanessa. (laughs) That it wasn't like before Valentine's Day. On Valentine's Day. Day. Yeah, right. It went to number one in the U.S. on the U.S. Top 40 charts. And it wound up being number four for the entire year of 2002. Between number four and number six, I I read conflicting reports. Okay, but so like, take me back to 2002. Like, what's oh, popular? Like, Michelle fucking, Branch? No, you <laughs> will fucking understand what, what is popular. Okay. So, there's going to be a lot of themes of this episode, but, you know, TLDR, Vanessa Carlton represented a change in pop music by women. Sweet. From what you expect from the late 90s to what Spice we, Girls. Spice Girls, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, that kind of thing, to what we eventually evolved into in the early and mid-2000s, like Michelle Brands, Sarah Bareilles. Okay, so this is my question. Okay. How did this, like, this kind of tease up your, your, the thing we just said about, about her representing a change. How did this 22-year-old Pennsylvanian come out of nowhere with a song that took between five and six years to write and turn into what The Guardian called, in a headline no less, a basic bitch staple? What? 
Oh, yeah. That spent 41 weeks on the Billboard Top 100 and sold over a million copies worldwide. And who is at the center of the song? Who is at the center of the song? Is that the question? Yes. That is a question. Jake Gyllenhaal. (laughs) You wish. You're actually (laughs) not super far off, but you wish. Yeah. Okay. So first, let's take a listen to the song. All right, give us Whoa. a play-by-play here. Okay, she's walking into her apartment. She's a horseshoe above her door. There's this a red is not fridge. A, this is not an apartment. This is a garage. <laughs> okay, but there's cabinets and a fridge. Some people have fridges in their garage. <laughs> Some suburbans. She's sitting at a piano. There's a ladder. People. Okay, it's looking more garage-like. She's flying out of the garage, making her way downtown. With what? What is she flying with? A piano. With? Okay, now she's passing like a bounce house. She's definitely in some track housing suburbs. Looks pretty fun. It's trampoline. So, so she's basically just like got a flying piano and and singing into the camera playing the flying piano. I think it's on a trailer. I think you're right. But we don't see the trailer. We don't see the trailer, correct. In the world of the video, it's just flying. <laughs> She's got some fast fingers. There's just an owl. There's an owl. I don't know if that owl was planned. (laughs) Oh, the strings are... Yeah, like a string quintet. (laughs) Now she's in New York. I think that this still might be L.A. This might be just downtown L.A. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of people in Cowboy Hats. Yeah. (laughs) There's a bus going to Fairfax Ave. That is L.A. (laughs) And now there's like a drill team? Like a a drill team? Flag? Color guard? Yeah, color guard. A horse! Two horses! Three horse, four horses. <laughs> Just counting the horses. <laughs> She's looking at the camera. It's creepy. I don't like it. It's too much. She's definitely been eye fucking the camera the whole time. Yes. Somehow, I don't think that was her idea. Why? Why would you say that? <laughs> It's only our 82nd episode. <laughs> There's, like, I saw like some police sirens in the back. If I could fall now it's nighttime. Do you think time would pass us by? It's just a fucking guy. Just a, just a fucking guy. The best. 
this is the tunnel that they drove in in heat. Oh. Fun fact. Fun fact, Second Avenue Tunnel. Silver guy is too distracting. Yeah, right. He looks like CeeLo Green, but silver. <laughs> CeeLo Silver. Oh, going back to the red fridge. Yeah, the, the the garage fridge. Did you have a garage fridge when you were growing up? Uh, I no. thought I didn't either. I lived. I didn't have a garage, but I thought that that was the true sign of wealth. It was a garage fridge, <laughs> a drink fridge. All right, so now she's back home. Okay. Okay. So let's do a quick. We had a pallet of Poland Springs out in the garage. Yeah, that's like a garage fridge. <laughs> a pallet of Poland Springs. It got, it got cold in the winter. <laughs> um, okay, so let's do a quick dramatic reading of the lyrics. Oh. Can you can you make my way downtown? That and, and I'm homebound. Nope. Staring blankly ahead, okay. making my Just, way. Why don't you through the crowd? Up. Why don't you Why don't you pull the lyrics up? <laughs> Okay, making my way downtown, walking fast, faces pass, and I'm homebound. <laughs> feel like I was right so far. No, you you, you <laughs> skipped you skipped a couple things. <laughs> walking fast, faces pass. Yeah. Staring blankly ahead, just making my way, making a way through the crowd. <laughs> and I need you. <laughs> and I miss you. And now I wonder. If I could fall into the sky, do you think time would pass me by? Because you know, I'd walk a thousand miles if I could just see you tonight. It's always times like these when I think of you and wonder if you ever think of me. Because everything's so wrong and I don't belong living in your precious memory. Memory. Because <laughs> I need you and I miss you and I wonder if I could fall into the sky, do you think time could pass me by oh because you know i'd walk a thousand miles if i could just see you tonight and i i don't want to let you know i i drown in your memory i don't want to let this go i i don't and then we do the the first verse again make them away downtown faces past walking fast faces past i'm home down homebound okay so how do you feel about the song? You were right in the middle of the strike zone for this song when it came yeah. out in 2002. Sure. How, what is your relationship with this song? I uh, like it. <laughs> Great. Do you, do you remember hearing it for the first time? Do you remember dancing to it at middle school dances? No. I mean, there are songs that I remember hearing for the first time, like No Scrubs and sure. Hit Me Baby One More Time. Like, yes. Remember I the first time. definitely remember hearing Hit Me Baby One More Time for the first time. Um, this one I don't, and I her other song, Ordinary Day, that I was singing. That you're fucking obsessed with. I remember like the video for that, but I didn't remember this piano video. I probably... Oh, interesting. Because by this time, right, it's 2002, I'm wa- I am watching MTV at like my friends' houses. Mm-hmm. TRL, et cetera. After school, you know how you do. This was very big on MTV. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't remember this one that much. I... Uh... And yeah, I really lump this her in with the Michelle Branch. You're not alone. And they both like had a different look. They were brunette, whereas mm-hmm. like everyone had been blonde before that. And 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 the way that they styled themselves or were styled. I also like throw Nelly Furtado in there where it's like, oh, we're not gonna be wearing midriff shirts and 
and doing bad choreography yeah, and more girl next know. door. Correct. Right. Um, so let's start where we always start. Vanessa Carlton was born in 1980 in Milford, Pennsylvania. Her age winds up being Milford important. or New Milford. Old Milford. Okay. Original Milford, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Her age winds up being important, and Milford is interesting to me because it's a town of one half square mile. Wow. And it, and it only has 1,100 people. What's it bordering? It's it's right on the border with on the Delaware, right across from kind of uh, closer like, to upstate New York, like above New Jersey. Um, her dad was a pilot, and her mother was a piano teacher, if you can believe it. As the story goes, that when when Vanessa was two, her parents took her to Disneyland, presumably in her dad's plane or something. And when she got home, no, but he was a pilot. (laughs) (laughs) I'm picturing like her dad like flying her there. Okay, he's a pilot who had his own plane. I don't know. I'm just making that up. All right, this is your captain speaking, aka dad. This is your dad speaking. Don't make me come back there. (laughs) They're in Disney. So they're in Disney. They go on the It's a Small World ride. And when Vanessa got home, she played It's a Small World on the piano. She was two at the time. Right. So I'm very skeptical (laughs) of this story. She just heard it one time and then went home and was like. Well, have you ever been on the It's a Small World ride? You don't hear it just once. You do hear it a lot. And do do you spin? No, no, no. You just it's like a ride through the through the village on and you water? Just, yeah, I think a you're boat? on water. Like like very shallow water. Okay. Sure. There's a there's a story this is a total non sequitur. There's a story from about 10 years ago where some uh a guy, a guy with a disability, like a guy who wasn't fully ambulatory, um got stuck on It's a Small World for like over four hours and the song just kept playing over and over and over again and he like sued disney for emotional distress i want to sue disney for emotional distress for mr toad's wild ride all right we can talk all about i was almost going to do a zippity doodah episode we got (laughs) we got a lot of disney stuff that we can talk shit on okay but I'm very skeptical of the story that two-year-old Vanessa Carlton was playing It's a Small World on the piano. And this reminds me of that, that TikTok dog that, like, presses the buttons and, like, everyone it says, says it's, words. Like, communicating. It's, like, completely fake. Sorry, everyone. It's very fake. But in a podcast, Berkeley, like, a Berkeley College of Music podcast, they asked her about there? this. No, but she's, like, okay. a songwriter. I think she's sure. done, like, guest lectures. Um, so this was Vanessa's response. The... The, the the dude on the podcast was just like, did you actually, you know, do you have any remem- mem- memory of this? Memory. Um, thank you. Do you have any memory of this? <laughs> and Vanessa says, I just remember that the It's a Small World ride scared the crap out of me. That melody. It was a very hypnotic, dark melody to me. <laughs> and I do remember it having a huge impact on me, but I don't remember playing it. Whoa. So this is this is like the family story. It is and a dark song. It's a weird it's a weird song. Um we're gonna meet and and hear some quotes from Vanessa's mom. This seems like a very Vanessa's Jody. mom thing. Jody Carlton? No. <laughs> I don't know. What's her name? Heidi. <laughs> Heidi. Heidi, yeah. So Heidi I was is... close. I'm basically psychic. You're basically psychic. <laughs> Heidi is like this Jewish lady who's like very, very proud of Vanessa. 
and we're gonna see some some Heidi clips. We get to meet Heidi in a minute. I want to know: Are all Jewish mothers the same? Um, basically, yes. She is like <laughs> she like fits the Jewish mother like mold. So she always gives you lots of snacks. Mm-hmm. Butts into your business. Yes. Knows all your friends' business. Correct. That's all I got. And and is very proud of her daughter. And Vanessa, very proud of her who's children. Who's like she? We came home from Disney. She played It's a Small World. <laughs> both hands, like <laughs> you know. Okay. Uh, but either way, at the age of two, Heidi Lee, Vanessa's mother, started giving her piano lessons. Okay. In 2022, for the 20th anniversary of. A Thousand Miles, Vice did a little documentary about the song. And so a lot of this info is coming straight from that. And we'll watch clips in a little in a little minute. But the sources and timelines vary about like when certain stuff took place, which makes the mystery of the center of the, at the center of the song a little bit more difficult to solve. This is like from from the lips of Heidi. By the time Vanessa was seven years old, she was both in piano and into piano and ballet. Vanessa herself said that right as she was turning 14, she moved from Pennsylvania to New York to study ballet at the American Conservatory, which is like a fame fame high school. A center stage. Center stage. Right. Exactly. So she... It's 2002, okay. And along... Well, it's not yet. It's 1994. (laughs) I know. And so along with that came some fucked up things. It was 1994. So... She was super turned off by the things that were going on in the conservatory, how the students were being treated by the teachers, body image stuff. Uh, Vanessa's quote in the documentary is, it was the 90s, as in, we all did fucked up shit to kids back then. Dude, my dance studio was super abusive. Yeah. So, and that, I'm not, I'm not downplaying it, but, and that wasn't the American conservatory. Correct. You know? But as her interest in ballet flags due to the, let's face it, abuse that she was enduring, she dove back into music. So this is the clip from the Vice documentary uh, about her time in the American Conservatory. The School of American Ballet at the time, and this is like this is the 90s, it was tough. There's a lot of problems with the school. Then I, I really started having trouble. I started to skip classes. I really didn't like a lot of the things that I saw that were going on. But I had music. I had music. I had something to turn to. In the dorm, there was an old piano. So I would go there and I started writing more elaborate songs instead of going to class. Music was my escape. It was something I didn't have to follow any rules. It was this other feeling I was getting when I would play that I didn't get when I danced anymore. So, a couple things. As an adult, she looks just like Kristen Wiig. I think Kristen Wiig should play her in the biopic. That's it. So fast forward a couple, another couple years. We're in the summer before Vanessa turned 17. She's home from school. She's playing her mother's piano in the sunroom. This is like a scene from the biopic starring Kristen Wiig. And Heidi says, quote, I was in the kitchen and Vanessa plays the riff from A Thousand Miles. And... Heidi just goes, that's a hit, sweetie. Right. So Vanessa's so, mom Vanessa's is clearly mom is very into proud it. of her. Yeah, she's very into it. No words, though. Just the little riff. And for an indeterminate amount of time, most people agree it's between like six months and two years, all Vanessa had was the riff. That's all she had? That's all she had for this song. 
she was writing other songs, right? She okay. she was she was not into ballet anymore, and she wanted to be a songwriter and performer. Um, mostly a song like she wanted to be a songwriter first, performer second, and so. At the age of around 18, she was waitressing in New York and playing showcases, hoping to get label attention so she wouldn't have to waitress anymore. Um, that's what she said. She's like, so I didn't have to work at a restaurant anymore. She didn't really have any designs on stardom. She caught the eye of a producer who she met with later. She played the beginning of the song called Interlude for a record producer who said, you have to finish that. That's, you got to finish you gotta, it. You got to finish it. So she returned to her parents' home and, according to sources, finished it in an hour, one evening. Okay. She called it, she called it interlude. That producer was Jimmy Iovine, head of Interscope Records. What? Yes. So this is from Billboard. I remember getting signed as a songwriter before... This is her Vanessa's quote. I remember getting signed as a songwriter before I got a record deal because even though I was such a baby writer, I think I was looked at initially as more viable as a songwriter than necessarily a pop act that someone would want to sign. I had a lot of meetings with different labels, and they were all with men, where they were very interested in my dance background. I used to be a ballet dancer, but I mean, I wasn't going to do ballet. They were always hinting at, would I be able to fit whatever the format was at the time for selling these female pop stars? It was like learning how this worked, who had the power here. It is like they find these talented girls and it's like puppet masters. Or are they asking me if I have the skill set because they want to compete with that? I think that there are, this is still Vanessa, I think that there are questions posed by a group of artists and then the next round of artists come in and answer those questions. All the pop girls that came out, like Britney and Christina and all that, wasn't that coming out of some sort of opposite energy from like grunge music? Perhaps the energy that they were looking for after that, and I don't know who they is, by the way. I don't know who decides this stuff. But after Christina and Brittany, well, I think at the time she didn't know who they was. Okay. Um, but she's like putting herself, you know, I don't know. Uh, but after Brittany and Christina, there were these handful of writers that came up during that time, but still really marketed as pop, but it was like anti-Britney pop or whatever. It was pitted against this and that. I don't know how that works. I also feel like when Fiona Apple came out, I don't know her own personal experience, of course, but it seemed like, to me, she had complete control over how she was presented through her music, in her music, through the artwork. I feel like, for whatever reason, I thought that I would have that level of freedom, I guess. <laughs> I don't, And I don't know that I had that because I was still sort of in the pop world I remember having a lot of arguments about artwork, what photos were used. People that will remain unnamed were like, every space on your record is real estate, Vanessa. And it was like, what? What does that mean? What am I selling? Music. Image. Music. Image, right? And so this is like a very naive, you know, she was 18, very naive point of view of like how the record industry works. So this is back to that Berkeley podcast. This is Vanessa's quote again. The producer was also like, totally weird and harassing me and i was really struggling with him as well but my a and r guy was also totally creepy and my manager i mean i was just oh my god there are so many stories there but they were all they were gonna drop me the label was gonna drop me and i said to my manager i can't work any way with this a and r person he calls me in the middle of the night 
He's giving us drugs. He wants to hang out with me and my friends. Like, we're 19, and this guy's 35 with this really fancy platinum credit card, spending all of Interscope's money and going all of these dinners and stuff. And And she's like, get out of here, man. Come on. Well, she's, you know, I don't know. But uh, the, the interviewer from this Berkeley podcast was like, wait a minute. He just gave you drugs? And she's like, yeah. He'd, he'll be like, you guys want to do ecstasy tonight? I mean, he was I like this like they older. they did want to do ecstasy. They probably did. He was like this, this older A&R guy. It was just me and my dancer friends. And I had just gotten this record deal. And he wanted us to do that with him. It was just so weird. But so I said wrong. this. I said this to my manager at the time. I don't want to work with this person anymore. I can't do this. I'd rather lose my record deal and not do this. I said, this is Vanessa's quote. I want to call a meeting with Jimmy Iovine. And this is before my first record came out. <laughs> so let's, I'll let Vanessa tell us in her own words what happened next. Okay. Basically what happened was my dream came true. I got this record deal. I thought it was gonna, you know, it's gonna be this amazing situation. And in your mind, you get exactly what you want, and it's actually not what you want. At the end of the day, I was in a really bad situation with the people that I was working with, and it was not, it was not good. She was working with another A and R person. Um, she was having a difficult time with. This there was a lot of weirdness. An A&R a lot of she likes working with possessiveness okay. that was happening. So I told my manager at the time that I don't want to work anymore with this guy. And he said to me, "If you tell Jimmy that you don't work with the A and R guy, you're going to be dropped." I decided against my manager's advice that I would fly to L.A and have a meeting with Jimmy if he would take the meeting and tell him that I, I don't want to work with the A&R guy anymore. People would be afraid to walk into Jimmy's office. Jimmy Iovine was the head of Interscope, Geffen, and A&M Records, yeah, the largest label at the time. And Vanessa didn't care. She was going to go in and she was going to speak up for herself and she was going to say her piece. So Jimmy met with me and I said, I don't want to work with this person anymore. They weren't happy with the record anyway. So I don't know what you want to do with me, but I can't move forward with this team anymore. It would be easy to see the artist being dropped after making that move to go in and speak to the head of the company. I know that they were, you know, considering dropping me, but he ended up linking me with Ron. So all the while, Vanessa is trying to record this record when her fucking A&R guy is giving her ecstasy and stuff. And the the label is not happy with the record that they're producing. So Carlton is connected with this guy, Ron Fair who is the head of A&M Records, which is a subsidiary of Interscope. And he is the executive producer behind the arrangement that turned Vanessa's brilliant piano riff that her mom yelled at, yelled about in the kitchen into a global pop hit. So let's take a quick, let's check in with Ron a little bit. Let's check in with Ron. Ron's a real character. Somewhere here we have my Hans, Christina, don't follow my, my heart, a thousand miles, there it is, presents this certificate to Ron Fair in recognition of your nomination for Best Instrumental Arrangement Accompanying Vocalist, a thousand miles, Vanessa Carlton, 45th Grammys Award Year 2002. So that's the one that I trashed the hotel room over because I really, really, really wanted to win. The first time I became aware of Vanessa Carlton Mm -hmm. was when Jimmy Iovine gave me this brown paper bag of demo CDs that were basically the scrap heap. 
These were the CDs of the artists that had been signed, had been working, but it wasn't going to come to fruition. They were never going to see the light of day. And he said, Ron, check these out and let me know, like, are we good to go with the end? In that bag was Vanessa Carlton's CD. This is the enchilada right here, the genuine enchilada. This might have been a first iteration of the record. I don't even know what it was, but it was the first thing that I heard. I'd never seen her name before. Putting the CDs in the Walkman, I went through a few of them, and then I put the one in from Vanessa Carlton, and I just played it. I came to this song, which was seventh on the CD, and it wasn't even called A Thousand Miles, it was called Interlude. It played, you know, the famous intro, da 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 on piano, and the demo of A Thousand Miles played. I hit replay, and I hit replay, and I hit replay, and I hit replay, and I hit replay. I called Jimmy, and I say, there's a fucking smash on this. We cannot drop this artist. It's a fucking smash. I played it for an hour and a half. So I asked if I could meet with Vanessa Carlton and discuss with her the idea of re-recording the song and not dropping her at all, but starting anew. So, yeah, he says he says uh, that he heard the original demo. So there are... He Even he is unclear whether it was like her demo that she made on tape or whether it was this first album iteration. But there is a version, a pre-Ron Fair version of Interlude that we can listen to. Okay. So this so sounds is, like Ron. Just, <laughs> like I know no, what Ron sounds like. Pre, this is pre-Ron. <laughs> so she's so yeah, got some I mean, arrangement. Yeah, but there's like there's definitely some like special sauce that's missing from the final version. Yes. Um. So Ron is the person that brought the string arrange this really memorable string arrangement to the song. So I I really don't want to discount his contribution. And the Vice documentary goes into great detail about like the sessions that he did and the counter melody and like he's like wait to wait for the bass to come it's like he like opens up the pro tool session and shows you what he did which is cool. oh cool yeah um but vanessa and ron bumped heads in the studio they had different visions of the song and she had never worked with a real produce quote-unquote real producer before so he's like kind of bossing her around and she's like why are why do you get to tell me how to make my song <laughs> Because I'm but, smarter than you. Right. Basically, yeah. <laughs> like, I know more than you about this. <laughs> and he was right. Like, like the, they, they argued over, you know, at the end, um, you think time could pass us by. She, like, goes up at the end. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I don't want to do that. He's like, mm-hmm. you have to fucking do that. <laughs> 
And and in the documentary, he's like, it's the third course. You have to fucking pay it off. It's it's Ron's an interesting guy for sure. He's intense. You do though. He's right. He's a good producer. Um, and and Ron keeps saying it's a fucking smash. It's a fucking smash. And so he shows the record to Jimmy Iovine, and he's like expecting Jimmy to have to sell Jimmy Iovine on this. And Jimmy Iovine listens to the Ron version of the song and is like, "It's a fucking smash." They and start like, smashing things. Yeah, really. So they greenlit the video before the album dropped, which is not all that uncommon. But they knew that this was going to be like the first hit. And they knew that it was going to be like, you know, a massive, massive explosive hit. Or so they say. So the video, which we watched, is directed by a young a young dude at the time. This dude named Mark Klassfeld. He came up with the video concept of like the floating piano. And for a while, they just like, didn't know how they were going to do that. I know. I know. It seems very simple. But but they did it they did it exactly the way you said, which is that they put the piano on the back of like a flatbed and drove around. <laughs> and like sometimes it's on like a, in the beach it's on like a dolly track or whatever. Um but what they didn't do is close down all the streets. Saw that. So so like all of that traffic is real. That's not like fake like extra you know background or whatever so um the the uh the police sirens in the back that i pointed out during the during the video i'm like are they about to get shut down (laughs) but they were just driving around la driving on the highway with vanessa like on a flatbed trailer that's totally normal thing for la right you see that all the time actually kind of and she she had a hidden seat belt underneath her skirt that she wore just in case they like hit a bump or something (laughs) and the piano was empty the piano didn't play it was like you know because it's much lighter when it doesn't have all that shit in it (laughs) all that musical shit well she was very convincing on the fake keys i agree um the video premiered on mtv before the song premiered on the radio Wow. And it blew up, which is like not really common. And it blew up like crazy. They like ha- Interscope like had their MTV guy like put it into heavy rotation before the release of the radio version, the radio record. Interesting. So this is from Song Facts. A Thousand Miles got Grammy nominations for both Record of the Year and Song of the Year. But like just about everything else that year, it lost to Don't Know Why by Nora Jones. I waited until I saw the sun. Yeah. Do you know whose daughter that is? Uh, Tom Jones. No, I used to know. Ravi Shankar. Ravi Shankar, that's right. But Vanessa Carlton performed on the Gram- like at the Grammys that year. Performed 1,000 Miles. Okay. So like everyone was kind of expecting her to win. And after losing, I guess Ron Fair trashed his hotel room or something. In my head, he was like doing like a Boston fan thing, like smashing stuff because he won. <laughs> no, no, he lost. Okay. Boston fan thing. <laughs> but Vanessa and the American people ultimately had the last laugh because the song had an immediate second life be- and it features prominently in the 2004 movie White Chicks. White Chicks? Yeah, White Chicks. The I Damon didn't see Wayans, that movie. The wa- I mean, neither. And so I didn't know about this. But okay. the label, the, the A&R people at the label were like, listen, it was like a regular hit. And then the Wayans brothers got it. And and then it was like even fucking bigger. Wait, can we see? Yes. Okay. So, 
the movie, so the White Chicks is made in 2004, which means it's probably shot in 2003. So it's like the year after, uh, the year after Thousand Miles comes out, they like scoop it up to, for this placement. And the movie stars Sean and Marlon Wayans as FBI agents who go undercover as... <laughs> Sing the rest of the song, Lindsay. No. Sing it. Give me a high five. <laughs> and they go undercover as white girls to like infiltrate. I don't know. The agents are nearly busted when they're riding in a car with some real white chicks when a thousand miles comes on and they don't know the words like every white girl should. Later in the movie, we find out that it's the favorite song of another character in the film that happens to be a big black guy, Terry Crews. <laughs> so we're gonna watch this is the of the two scenes the setup and the payoff this is the scene that everyone remembers okay you are so beautiful that's Terry Crews <laughs> hey how about we listen to a little bit of music wait Bro. is a Wayans brother in there Yes. How did you know? I love this song. Making my way downtown, walking fast, faces pass, and I'm homebound. And I need you. And I miss you. And now I wonder if I could fall into the sky. Do you think time would pass me by? Cause you know I'd walk a thousand miles if I could just sing you tonight. Okay. That was it? Yeah, that's it. Tell me, tell me, tell me what's wrong. What's what happened? I mean, his like overly theatrical Ashton Kutcher singing was just like so awkward, and he was just. Yeah. And I don't know what was happening with the Wayans brother. Why was why was that happening? The well, they go undercover as white chicks. That's the premise of the movie. Is they're in like drag and white face the entire movie with the color contacts. The color contacts are rough, man. It was horrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They look like a like a ancient golem or something. <laughs> All right. Well, the movie was trashed by critics. I wonder why. <laughs> Nominated for a Razzie for worst movie, but a lot of people love the film, and they and lots of people saw it. It made like a hundred and fifty million dollars at the box office, and had a like a ton of TV showings. It had a big second life on on home video, and song video? facts, home video like renting like DVD. movies. Oh. No, no, like like purchasing DVDs. I don't think we rented in 2011. We may have. Blockbuster existed. I definitely did. I rented it. In, yeah. You rented White Chicks last week. <laughs> when Song Facts spoke with Vanessa Carlton in 2011, they asked her how she felt about her song being in the movie. And she said, I thought it was hilarious. Those guys are really nice, too. I ran uh. into them backstage or something. And they asked me directly if I could, if they could use it. They're like fans. They're so cute. But the scene that, that was in was hilarious. Was it? I don't know, man. That's what she said. And Song Facts like asked again, like, how do you feel about it being used as like the white girl anthem? And she says, if you've seen it, that's not the message of it. 
That was the message. That's, that's not the way that they plug it into the film. It's actually the secret song of that big black dude in the SUV. It's like his jam. It's not an SUV. But the irony is that people associate it with a white girl playing the piano, but it's his secret jam. So it's able to push through all of those micro genres, and you can't profile who's going to like the song. That's what they were displaying in that scene, and I really liked it a lot. Aw. It's the... I don't think it's all the way wrong. No, it's the, the silver lining read. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And according to Terry Crews, he memorized the song and nailed the scene in the first take. <laughs> They were like, don't do that again. Don't do that again. <laughs> and Cruz said that the performance, this performance and this song changed his career because he's based every character that he's done since on like the scary black dude that has a soft side. Kanye West included the song in his iTunes celebrity play playlist. He said of Carlton, who is Jewish, this must be the white song that all black people like. You know, every year there's a song that black people like, and this is that. I love the string arrangements. Why Thanks, did you Kanye. just say who is Jewish? Because Kanye is notoriously anti a, a friend Semitic. of the Jews. <laughs> Kanye West, friend of the Jews. <laughs> so this is from The Guardian. This is that, this is that uh, article, Vanessa Carlton's A Thousand Miles, Cinema's Basic Bitch Staple. Great. So I'm going to be The Guardian for a second. From the off, like from the jump, I guess. From the off, the rom-com affiliation was obvious. Hence the song's inclusion pre-release in the soundtrack for Legally Blonde. Amazing. After officially coming out as Carlton's debut single, uh, sorry, Vanessa's debut single the following year, A Thousand Miles went platinum in the UK and earned a permanent place on radio playlists worldwide and continued to feature on soundtracks for both rom-coms and teen televisions. So, when around 2014, the concept of a basic bitch emerged via a viral college humor video, A Thousand Miles was a staple signifier. It seemed exactly the sort of tune that a basic B, parentheses, a woman of unoriginal cultural tastes, would hum while sipping on a Starbucks pumpkin spice latte and making a and making brunch plans. Young Karen. Young right. Karen. Proto Karen. It took prime position on every basics yoga playlist. See also Natasha Bedingfield's Unwritten and Donna Lewis's I Love You Always Forever and Sixpence None the Richer's Kiss Me. These are great. I know. What's wrong with any of these songs? <laughs> In cinema, we were going through a mini rom-com golden age with Never Been Kissed, The Wedding Singer, Ten Things I Hate About You, and your favorite, Love Actually, all coming out within five years of each other. But Vanessa also came along just in time to ride the backlash against the pop princesses Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera by sounding more like the sweet little sister of Alanis Morissette, Tori Amos, and Fiona Apple. Compared to these feminist post-grunge acts... Carlton was reassuringly melodic, anguished, but accessible. <laughs> was she? Yeah. She the girliness seem very of anguished to me. Well, I guess. I guess. I guess. A little. The girliness of A Thousand Miles also lent itself to parody. Or was this actually earnest enjoyment cloaked in macho posturing? According to the Chicago Sun-Times, by April 2003 and the beginning of the Iraq War, A Thousand Miles had become the most requested song on British Forces Broadcasting Services Radio in the Middle East. What? 
So remember our Teenage Dirtbag episode and that mm-hmm. scene from Generation Kill we watched and these soldiers like like taking a song from home and like making it feel like, you know, they're they're living in normalcy again. Yeah. For 2003, in British service radio, it was fucking a thousand miles. I wonder if it had anything to do with the message of the song, which was I would walk a thousand miles if I could see you. Yeah, yeah. So like go home. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a sense of longing. And what they call anguish in this, I would I would refer to as like longing, right? Vanessa's now ultra famous. And her mom just told her to buy a hat. Her Make it a bucket like, hat. Her mom's like, like, get a hat, wear it real low, no one's gonna recognize you. <laughs> her mom fucking rules. I thought we were gonna meet Heidi. Oh, we are. But with massive hit with a massive hit comes massive expectations. So we're going to go back to the Vice documentary. I think the biggest challenge for someone in my position would be to not look at the power and success of that song, to not be like squashed by it. Oh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I hated this song. I hated this. I mean, you okay. have to understand. I, 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 had, I had to go Aww. through this process and, and figure out what, you know, it took like... M- over a decade for me to figure out what all that was and then you know how to continue growing as a person as a as an artist you don't want to complain about such luck and such success it does come at a at a price though it's like your first big paper that you wrote in high school and you're a writer okay now you've written books you've written books it's like this little essay you wrote in high school and that's what just gets republished and republished and it's not to say that it's not authentic expression or anything. It's like your first draft of anything you've ever written. But that's okay. The irony of the song is that there's something about it that is so unifying. Everybody likes that song, from what I can tell. I mean, I'm sure there's many people who hate that song. But <laughs> in general, no. it no, is this Heidi. thing. And that's what I'm most proud of. You gotta love Heidi just shaking when, when Vanessa's like, I'm sure there are people that don't love the song. Heidi's like, no. Everyone loves it. Everyone loves it. My daughter. So cute. Yeah, Heidi's adorable. So, but let's go back, right? Let's go back to 1998, 1999, and to the statement that Vanessa finished the song in one hour after months or a year of writer's block. What finally broke free inside of her to write the music and lyrics so fast? I don't want to know this. What? I didn't. I don't mean like that. <laughs> You're constipated in your soul. She got a vibrator. No, no, no. Well, maybe. The song is about a crush I had on a Juilliard student. <laughs> I would never talk to this person. I was very shy. I was like, there's just no way in God's creation that this would ever happen. So the idea of like, you have a better chance of falling up than ever having a relationship with this person. I can't say the person's yeah. name because they're like a famous actor and I don't want Who to Who is it? Do they know the songs about them? No. That's right, baby. We're on the case. <laughs> Who is a thousand miles about? Um, okay, so he's a famous actor now. Mm-hmm. He went to Juilliard. Mm-hmm. So Timothy natu- Chalamet. You, th- you think that Timothy Chalamet, Chalamet. who is 20... <laughs> was like a one-year-old <laughs> and Vanessa Carlton's like yeah sexy peach so peach fuzz <laughs> so that's that's Lindsay's fucking 
fucking guess. Naturally, the internet is now engaged in a in in theorizing. Sweet. The now famous Juilliard student of the of a thousand miles era, which we are calling ninety seven to ninety nine. Okay. Right. Because and this is like a big eliminating factor. People were finding Juilliard students from like two thousand one thinking that it was like right before the song came out that's when she wrote it but we know that it's like between 97 and 99 great who do we who's on the docket oh we got some suspects <laughs> so rachel leishman uh who's the assistant editor of the mary sue and co-host of the podcast padro pascal the pedro pascal podcast has some theories <laughs> let's hear up suspect number one oscar isaac so Leishman links to a Mental Floss article saying that Isaac put his music on hold in 2001 to attend Juilliard. But wait a minute. If Vanessa wrote the song in 1998-ish, then how could the song be about Oscar Isaac, who attended Juilliard in 2001? But double wait a minute, because the Mental Floss article said that Oscar Isaac gave up music? That's right. Oscar Isaac was in a motherfucking ska band. Called the Blinking Underdogs. The Blinking Underdogs? Would you like to see? I would. 20 years ago, Oscar Isaac playing a show with the Blinking Underdogs. This is their song, Salvation. There he is. Oh, wow. Playing a flying V like a motherfucking boss. This is very fun and sexy. Yeah. <laughs> so the Bunking Underdogs had a little bit of success, and they opened for Green Day on a show or a tour or something. Great. Love that. And then Oscar Isaac transitioned from music to acting in the late 90s after going to a casting director workshop while still in the Blinking Underdogs and getting cast as a bit, bit part in a movie. So, is it possible that Vanessa, in exploring her musical avenues in New York City before writing the song, crossed Oscar Isaac's path? She didn't say specifically that he was a Juilliard student at the time. And Isaac could, like, they could have, you know, met in the music scene. I'm going to go with no. I'll also take off my tinfoil hat right off, right after I point out that the shirt that Isaac is wearing in the video is an I Love New York York shirt, New York City (laughs) shirt. Suspect two. Glenn Howerton, the star of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So. I mean, this guy seems kind of douchey. I could imagine not wanting to say it's him. Sure. And he does have a specific system for picking up women that he outlines in an episode of It's Always Correct. Sunny in Philadelphia. Are they like mattress shopping or something? <laughs> there, there, is a, there is a clip where he's mattress shopping. I would play the sequence, but it's six minutes long and I don't, you know, I don't want to take off the time. But it's, it's called The Dentist It's system. rapey. It is very rapey, yes. Suspect three, Jessica Chastain. Yes. <laughs> Even though Vanessa you sometimes uses masculine pronouns when discussing this crush, sometimes she uses they them. 
And in 2010, she came out as bisexual while headlining the Nashville Pride Parade. She announced, quote, I've never said this before, but while we're here and living out loud, as we should every single day, I myself am a proud bisexual woman. Could she be obscuring the true identity of her crush by using different pronouns? She could. This is from Pride.com. Supplying even more damning evidence that the song is gay, a TikToker at the Bald Ridges included her own lyrical analysis. Making my way downtown, walking fast, the first line so infamously goes, straight people don't walk fast. The bald, uh, the bald Ridges points out, acknowledging LGBTQ plus folks' superior striding speeds, staring blankly ahead, this is queer culture. <laughs> Suspect four, Alan Tudyk. Tudyk Allen. Tudyk Allen. From no dicks to two dicks. Are you looking up Alan Tudyk? Correct. T-U-D-Y-K. Steve the Pirate from Dodgeball, the voice of K2SO from Rogue One. There doesn't seem to be much there, there, but he did play King Candy in Wreck-It Ralph, where a girl that bears a striking resemblance to Vanessa makes her way downtown, <laughs> driving fast. Ooh. What is this little gem? It looks like it's a scene right out of the music video. <laughs> Here comes Vanessa. I'm sorry, Vanellope. Vanellope? That's her character's name, Vanellope. The plot thickens. So, are Alan and Vanessa trading barbs in the media? Suspect five, Wes Bentley. So, Wes Bentley is only two years older than Vanessa. A Reddit user backs up this Wes Bentley theory, referring to an alleged post in a Vanessa Carlton Facebook fan group that stated that the song was written about meeting Wes Bentley at a show. But... Bentley only attended Juilliard for one year before transitioning to Columbia, but but Carlton also went to Columbia. Okay, but was he even famous before like last year? It's my ne- it's my next fuck last year. <laughs> That's this is my next fucking note. Wes Bentley is not what I would call a super famous actor. So does no. he like count? No. Double, however. In 1999, around the time that Vanessa was finishing A Thousand Miles, give or take, Bentley had his biggest starring role in the best picture winning American Beauty. He was in American Beauty? He's the, he's the plastic bag kid. <gasps> he's so creepy. It was one of those days where it's a minute away from snowing. I'm so glad that you forgot he was the plastic bag kid. I definitely forgot. (laughs) Makes you so fucking happy. (laughs) Right. And this bag was just dancing with me. Like a little kid begging me to play with it. For 15 minutes. Yesterday I realized that there was this entire life behind things. So is this guy crushable? What do you think? No. He's so creepy. 
it seems to be that the smoking gun in this or like one of the like big he pieces is Jake Gyllenhaal though ish he and is you Jake said Gyllenhaal-y. I was close I know I know this is why I said that <laughs> it seems one of the main pieces of evidence that it is Wes Bentley is that Bentley is only two years older than her so it kind of like matches up but Oscar Isaac is only one year older than Vanessa and way hotter and way hotter so who do you think it is the general consensus is that it's Wes Bentley. I think that is the most reasonable guess, and also something you wouldn't want to admit. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's either Wes Bentley or Oscar Isaac. I think that that it if it's definitely... Oscar Isaac, you're like, dude, it was dude, Oscar Isaac. I wanted to fuck Oscar Isaac. Yeah, so come yeah. on, who doesn't? I would be remiss if I didn't mention that community actor Gillian Jacobs and Captain America star Anthony Mackie both went to Juilliard around this time, too. But there's not really a connection. Like, I can, can't find any other connection between them other than, like, they were there. And Gillian Jacobs is hot. She is. When it came time for Vanessa's next record, it's safe to say that a romantic partner also influenced that one. Safe to so say. This is safe to say. Well... It's about to get, it's, we've, we've had our fun, and now let's bum everybody out. Little did so he know. So this is from, little, oh, I could write an entire treatise on Little Did He Know. <laughs> um, so this is from that Berkeley interview. So Ron's advice, Ron Fair, this is, uh, this is Vanessa talking. Ron's advice, Ron Fair, was you can work with any producer in the world. Why are you working with your boyfriend? And at the time, I was trying to get away from Ron. I knew that Ron wanted to do it again, and he's the president of my label, and I didn't want the president of my label to produce the record again. And there's a lot that I wanted to change, and there's so much I needed to learn, really. But I ended up going from one powerful, control-freakish guy to another, which was my then-boyfriend at the time, the singer of Third Eye Blind, Stephen Jenkins. What? As I mentioned before... Vanessa and Ron kind of butt heads creatively in the studio, and so she really wanted to flex her own independence. This is Vanessa's quote. I just thought, well, I guess I'll just try this, and not knowing that Steven wasn't really a producer either. But anyway, my second record, it was just me. Don't hire your boyfriend. I was just so young. I was 23 or 24 years old. And then Ron resented me because I didn't want to work with Ron anymore. And I chose Steven over Ron. And then White Houses, which is the first single off of the second record, Harmonium, came out. And they censored it. They being, I guess, MTV. um, Because they didn't like that any part of it was about sex or anything. There were moments of that song that were censored on MTV. So he, Ron the president of A&M Records, just stopped promoting that record. So it was like the classic sophomore slump in comparison to the first one. That led to one more record at A&M, squeezing one more out with Steven, but it was also a pretty misguided idea on my end. So she did two records with Steven. Two records with Steven, three with A&M total. So the, the, you wanted to look at the track listing for Harmonium, right? The second mm-hmm. record? Yeah. So the track listing is White Houses, which we're going to take a listen to in a second. Who's to Say, which I don't know. Annie, San Francisco, which is not the Mamas and Papas song. Afterglow, Private Radio, Half a Week Before the Winter, Say La Vie, which is not the, the what is it, Bewitched sings? Say da da 
Da-na-na, take you to what I don't. That's it. That's oh, it. Oh, yeah. Either. I forgot about that. Not that, that song. Papa, She Floats, The Wreckage, which is a hidden track, and then on the on the bonus Japanese version, Where the Streets Have No Name, the U2 song. Okay. But Stephen Jenkins has co-writing credits on one, two, three, four, four of these songs on the record. So, like, not great. But let's take a let's take a look a, let's take a look at White Houses by Vanessa Carlton to see like what this sexually explicit stuff is that that she's talking about. Okay. Crashed on the floor when I moved in. This little bungalow with some strange new friends. Oh yeah, I know this. Stay one. up too late. This just sounds like Lita Ford. We promise each other. So she's finally doing her dancing, right? You know the Lita Ford song, Kiss Me Deadly? Uh-huh. This is that. Is this the only single off of Harmonium? Yeah, just for this record, just White Houses. Okay. One pant leg up, yeah. It's moonwalking, though. So I don't hate this song, and I don't find it super sexually explicit, but it's definitely less like uh, Girl Next Door, you know? Yeah, it's not sexually explicit at all. It has like a little bit of like a Regina Spector foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Which is the same year as uh, Soviet Kitchen came out. Okay. I don't. I don't really understand the uh, the issue with this song. Of what course, year did this, this come out? Two thousand four. Okay. But it makes sense that this is the only uh, the only single from the record because A and M pulled all of the promotion for this record after White Houses came out. Why? Because they didn't like it. Ron didn't like it. Ron felt threatened by Steven and MTV censored something about the sexual content of this video. And then she just falls off the face of the planet. No, she squeezed one more out with Steven. She squeezed one more out with Steven. She actually has six records total. So Heroes and Thieves is the third album. And Vanessa worked with producer Linda Perry, who produced with for Pink and Christina Aguilera and Courtney Love and many more. She was also in Four Non Blondes. Great. Love that. Of course. And Vanessa says, that was cool working with Linda. She really gets these, like, land of the lost toys that show up at her door. I'm sure that she'll say that, too. And they're like, what do I do? Labels will send artists to her who I think are on the verge of either being dropped or I don't know. She is a very healing person in many ways. It was nice to work with her. But at the same time, I was with Steven at the time. And he wanted his credit to be an A&R. He wanted to A&R the record, too. And it was just very stressful in terms of the credits that he wanted. And I felt that he was managing a lot of stuff that I didn't know how to manage. He's 18 years older than me. Holy shit. Back then, my dad wanted to get on a plane and fly to California and actually kill him. Need I remind you, get on a plane means that he's flying the plane. (laughs) I wasn't even close to my parents at the time. There was a total rift in my whole world. And there's like a couple of quotes that she said about how she didn't talk to her mom for years. It was a classic predatory womanizing gaslighting situation. 100%. He was with other women. I mean, a year in and he started with tons of other women I didn't even know about. But like, I didn't know the definition of gaslighting until a couple years ago when I heard it. I was like, what does that mean? Because it's very confusing when you're with an older man. I guess this doesn't necessarily have to be a male-female situation, but an older man where they're like really propping you up in a certain way, but taking you down in other ways. Like, you should be as big as this and that. You're the only one that can do it like this. But then, why don't you read the newspaper? It's really stupid that you don't read, he'd always say. You can't produce your own stuff. You're not that. You're not producing. I love when people are like, you're not a producer. Meanwhile, they're not either. (laughs) So in the mid-2000s, Vanessa opened up about substance abuse and disordered eating. In White Houses, she even says there's like a little line that says, I'm too thin, right? So by 2011, this is from Spin. By 2011, Vanessa was dealing with a host of personal obstacles, a few of which had begun to affect the people close to her. Quote, the alcohol was out of control. I was on all of these pills and I really was not feeling good. I was also dealing with stuff with my family. I haven't talked to my mom. I hadn't talked to my mom for a couple of years, and that was really hard. You can really get lost in like vodka and cocaine. She continues. There were moments where you're like, I could probably end this now completely, and it's just pitiful. I totally have shame about it, but I think I had to reach my own personal rock bottom to rethink and come up with a different approach to my whole life. 
And so that happens, what, in her, like, early 20s? Yeah, that happens, like, you know, I don't... Correlation does not equal causation, but that happens, like, throughout her relationship with Steven. Okay. Which lasts how long? Uh, I think that they broke up around 2007, 2008. Okay. Because they were still together when the third, third record, Heroes and Thieves, came out, which was 2007. And okay. then they just, like, you know, she... Uh, parachuted out of that relationship around the same time in 2011 2012 vanessa met and started dating john mccauley of dear tick and in 2013 at a live performance in new york carlton announced that she was expecting her first child with mccauley she has a kid with him in november she announced that she had experienced an ectopic pregnancy, oh. which later suffered a ruptured tube and internal bleeding and after surgery her right fallopian tube was removed horrible so, so they lost the baby and not to get all fucking political but abortion saves people's lives thank you i'm not telling you i'm telling everybody i'm saying thank you for saying that because oh, i've been th- really upset that no men are really speaking out about this and it's yeah. fucking crazy what's going on in our country we, we talked a little bit about it last week too yeah like it it come the fuck on anyway uh on december 27th 2013 carlton and macaulay married in white houses. In white houses. In a ceremony officiated by Stevie Nicks. Cool. Right? Yeah, that's badass. Pretty good. That's fucking badass. And then uh, in 2014, Vanessa announced via Facebook that the release of her next album, Lieberman, would be delayed until the summer of 2015 because she was expecting another child. And in 2015, she gave birth to their daughter. In 2020, she released her sixth and most recent album, which is called Love is an Art, and she lived with Macaulay in Nashville um, until 2021 when they moved to Rhode Island. Love Rhode Island. I used to I live know. there, too. This is, uh, this is from Billboard. Carlton, sorry, Vanessa recently moved to Rhode Island with her husband, John Macaulay, front man of the band Deer Tick, and their seven-year-old daughter, Sydney, and... She's been going to Nashville intermittently for songwriting sessions, but she's also been a substitute teacher at her daughter's school, which she describes as a pretty, as pretty life-changing experience. Aw, what kind of teaching? As a pretty life-changing experience. I mean, she's seven, so I think like anything, right? Like, just like gen ed. Just sit there and make sure they don't die. Yeah, right? Which is kind of hard to do in this country also. Correct. And she said it's it's a pretty life-changing experience that has allowed her to help children in her community during the pandemic. Cute. Billboard asks her, how do you look back on the year 2002? And Vanessa says, this is so funny. Honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is low-rise jeans. Like, the waists on jeans were way too low. Why? Why is this happening? <laughs> Why did that happen? That's the quote. That's hilarious. When I think of 2002, I think of vagina jeans. Yeah, right? Well, this is her, this is what she says, too. <laughs> In the Vice doc, Vanessa mentions living with her parents during quarantine, but she doesn't mention her husband or her daughter. Maybe something happened to cause a rift between Macaulay in the last year, or maybe, just like always, Vanessa likes to keep her love life a little bit private. Hmm. So what are we going out on this week, Lindsay? This week, we're going out on just a day, just an no, ordinary day. <laughs> you fucking wish. 
this was like a whole section that I cut out because it's like only tangentially related to the song. But we all know that pop hits, especially from the early 2000s, get a second life as hip hop samples. Yes. In 2020, OKPlayer.com did a piece on just how many rap songs sampled a thousand miles, citing its inclusion in the White Chicks movie as its introduction as its introduction to hip hop culture. Amazing. <laughs> so this is what I think this is what the A and R person at the record label means, like by saying like this really took the song over the edge because. This list included the top 10 songs that sampled a thousand miles, including T.I., Cameron. But we're going to listen to and we're going to go out on a Youngin' Ace, Spin a Benz, Wappa with the Tapa, and Fast Money Goon song, Who I Smoke. Yes, I did practice those names. Thank you very much. That was a good job. Where can people find us on the internet, Lindsay? Find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch on Instagram and Twitter. And for longer and weirder stuff, send us an email, lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. If you listen to us on your podcatcher apps, check us out on Vivo. We're at Podcasts on Vivo every Tuesday or most Tuesdays. And if you're a Podcast on Vivo watcher, get us wherever you find your podcasts. Give us a thumbs up. Read comments. We read the comments. We do. And, and tune in next week when we do this all over again with another song that will make you long for low-rise jeans. Yeah. And until then, I'm Aviv Brudenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying. Just a boy, just an <laughs> ordinary boy. I'ma shoot this bitch when I motherfucking see you. I don't go nowhere without my motherfucking heat cool. Smoking on love Peter, I was smoking trade D2. Free my nigga Max till they motherfucking free you. Knock a nigga out, boy, you could get your ass beat too. Look ho, you tripping, baby girl, I don't need you. You could walk a thousand miles and I still don't wanna see you. I got the whole city scared, these niggas know what we do. Baby, who I smoke? Dinky, who I smoke? Lanai.